Welcome to the Law of Profit Podcast, where we share inspiring conversations in the hopes of revolutionizing the legal industry. In our origin story interviews, attorneys from around the country get vulnerable and reveal how their own personal stories have shaped their careers. In our legal marketing discussions, we go deep and share how you can build a lasting brand that reflects your passions and creates a sense of fulfillment and purpose in your life. We also dig into running a law firm and discuss all things business, from operating procedures and trust accounting to growing your revenue and learning how to make the shift from being self-employed into being an entrepreneur. It's time to discover how to take your law practice to the next level. All right. Hello, everyone. This is Case Barnett with Law Profit. Today with us, we have Judge James Rogan. Uh, Judge Rogan started his legal career at a big firm in Los Angeles. He quickly left for the district attorney's office where he was elevated to the role of prosecuting gang murder trials. He was appointed to the bench at the age of 33. He was then the youngest sitting judge. He was elected presiding judge by his colleagues shortly after that. In 1994, he won election to the California State Assembly and was chosen by his colleagues as majority leader. In 1996, he was elected to Congress. Uh, There, he served on the prestigious House Commerce and House Judiciary Committee. There, his colleagues selected him to be one of the lead prosecutors in the impeachment of President Bill Clinton. He has had five books published, including his autobiography, Rough Edges, which Reader's Digest named one of his top four nonfiction books of 2004. He is currently the supervising judge at the North Justice Center for Orange County and uh, a law professor at Chapman University. Judge Rogan was born the grandson of a longshoreman and the son of a cocktail waitress. His father left before he was born. He grew up one of four kids with his mom on welfare and food stamps. He was kicked out of high school and then left continuation school. Later, he was almost kicked out of UCLA Law School, but survived. (laughs) He spent time working as a door-to-door vacuum salesman, making pizzas, bussing tables, assembling bikes for Christmas shoppers, dumping trash, crushing cardboard boxes, stocking shelves at a grocery store as a fast food cook, and bartending at biker bars and would you call it a, a, a strip club? Well, you know, since you've raised the issue, I, there's always a hierarchy. Uh, I bartended in Hollywood at both a female mud wrestling bar and a female hot oil wrestling bar. And apparently in the world of female wrestlers, uh, the hot oil uh, had a higher cover charge. And so that's, there's a, a, you know, a slight differential. So I wouldn't lump them together, but uh, (laughs) important to draw that distinction. I appreciate that. And so I don't know if this is an official record, but um, I'm claiming this as an official record that you are the member of Congress who has literally been in the most knife fights prior to holding elective office? That may have been true before Trump. I'm, I mean, I'm not sure. <laughs> what I on TV these days, I, I don't know whether I want to make that claim. <laughs> and, and one of your closest encounters was uh, you were almost stabbed by a guy named Fleabag, correct? That happened, yep. Uh, so, Judge Rogan, thank you very much for being here with us today. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm, as we were saying off mic before we got started, I'm really proud uh, of, of you and your career, because uh, you were in my you were in my court what 10, 12 years ago as a baby public defender, and uh, to watch everything that you put together is just really amazing. I, I wish I really appreciate my law students so I could take credit for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really appreciate it. I learned a lot in your- anyway. <laughs> well, I learned a lot in your courtroom, Your Honor. Uh, not you. about not just about law, but 
how to conduct yourself as a gentleman in the courtroom and how to show respect for all sides. So I really appreciate what you taught me. And uh, I've admired you since the time I got to spend in the courtroom. I'm really excited to get to sit down with you today to share some of your story uh, and hopefully inspire some other people and show people um, what one way to live life is and, uh, you know, your version of success. So thank you. Thank you. So um, I, I want to start at the beginning. Uh, growing up, your grandfather was a, a big influence in your life. And uh, in reading your book, it, it seemed like your relationship with him, you, I mean, you called him the, the greatest man you've ever met. And your relationship with him made a lasting impact in your life. And it seems it impacted, maybe this is too much, but every major decision that you've made in your life, I, I feel like he's influenced. So can you tell us about that relationship and how it's influenced you? My grandfather was, uh, you know, if you just, if you had met him, you wouldn't have thought he was anything special. He had worked on the docks in San Francisco for 45 years. I just found a letter uh, that uh, he wrote a few days before he died and half the words are misspelled. Um, Bald, hearing aid, scowling. I don't, you know, I think I saw him smile once in my life. But he was just one of these guys that uh, grew up and raised a family during the Depression. Uh, he had three kids. My mom was his youngest, and she was very rebellious. Once she uh, turned eighteen, she moved out of the house. She took a job at a bar in San Francisco and started dating the bartender. And he got her pregnant, and then told her uh, goodbye. I'm in love with somebody else. So that's how I came around. And my mother just she wasn't prepared to take care of a child. So she showed up at my grandparents' doorstep, dropped me off. And so he raised me. Uh, he and my grandmother raised me from uh, the time I was born until he died when I was seven years old. But uh, you will appreciate this probably more than most case because you were a defense attorney uh, for so many years. And you've seen uh, the wreckage of what happens in, in dysfunctional families like the cir circumstances in which uh, I was born. If a kid is lucky, if there's no father in the house, then there's a grandparent, an uncle, or a coach, uh, or a scoutmaster, or something like that, where there can be a strong male role model influence. Uh, and if a kid is not lucky, uh, you and I together have often seen the results of uh, what happens when uh, you know these kids are just kind of running wild without any kind of strong influence like that. My grandfather was a very strong influence. You don't you don't want to take on a guy who's been a dock worker for 45 years. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it, it looks like that he, did you take from him? He, he saw the world. It seemed like as black and white, right? He had black and white standards for how he viewed things. It was this way or that way. It was a pretty black and white. He <laughs> <laughs> was definitely black and white uh, in one area, because as I, I told a few stories in the book, he not only raised me, he raised my aunt's eldest daughter from the time she was born. And uh, my cousin Lynn was 10 years older than I. So when I was five, six, seven, she was 15, 16, 17. And we were living in San Francisco at the height of the Haight-Ashbury hippie days. And, uh, you know, as he used to tell her, the dirtier they are, the better you like them. And when she'd bring boyfriends over the house, it was all black and white. They got about a three second look over. And if they didn't leave when grandpa said, you've got five seconds to be down the stairs, he showed them the fast exit uh, down the stairs at the old fashioned way. Just heave ho. <laughs> why, why did you, why, why did you refer to him as the greatest man that you ever knew? He was just, he's, he was everything that a kid could want 
as far as having a role model. Here was a guy that got up every day for 45 years. I think he got up around 4.30 in the morning, uh, was on the docks when it was still cold and raining and uh, dark. Uh, he'd put in a 10, 12-hour day there. And then he'd come home, raise his family, love his family, and get up and do it that very next day. And uh, he did it for almost a half a century. Um, he just he instilled all kinds of values in me, such as the value of work. Uh, he used to bring me down to the docks, and I'd see some of these guys that looked like pirates. They were scary to a little four or five-year-old uh, boy, but they all spoke very respectfully to him because he was the boss, and he spoke very respectfully to them. And uh, he didn't brook any disrespect. Uh, from anybody. And so he was just an encyclopedia of uh, values and virtues that uh, we take for granted these days. But uh, I studied him like a primer. And uh, and I hope that all the good traits that uh, you've mentioned uh, derived from him because uh, he was he was the biggest influence in my life. And I've had a lot of people I've known a lot of famous people over the years. And I've, you know, seen a lot of things up close from a historical standpoint, but I, I haven't met anybody that, that could hold a candle to him. And so that those things that he instilled in you when you were younger, you know, it looks like to me, it's, it, they stayed with you and they've impacted you. Uh, did his role in your life help you help define your love for politics or, or what, what did that for you? No, he died when I was seven and uh, he was a big union guy. And that's all I really remember. I don't remember any political discussions with him. I don't think politics, if it was a big deal to him, I was too young uh, to remember uh, the politics. My interest in politics really developed uh, as a young boy because I had an interest in history. And uh, the more I read history, the more I loved to read about history and government. And of course, the the study of American history and the study of government is the study of politics. Uh, what really lit the fire for me was that interest coincided uh, with the 1968 presidential campaign. And I was growing up in San Francisco and uh, probably most, if not everybody listening to this podcast, may be too young to remember. But it was a very intense campaign. And uh, it came down to in the California primary between Eugene McCarthy and Robert F. Kennedy, President Kennedy's younger brother. And uh, Senator Kennedy was assassinated minutes after declaring victory in the California primary. Uh, in that race, uh, there were there were titans running against each other for president. I, I wrote a book about it, in fact. And uh, <clears throat> if you think about it, I mean, even even 50 years later in one think about the 1916 Republican primary, and I'm not making any political comment here, but do you remember they had 17 candidates running for president? They had to put them on two different stages uh, for the debates. And other than Donald Trump, the reality TV star, and Jeb Bush, the president's brother and son, the other 15 guys all registered between zero and 2% in the polls. And so that's the way kind of elections go these days. But in 1968, running against each other in one election was... President Lyndon Johnson, Robert F. Kennedy, Vice President Hubert Humphrey, Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, Nelson Rockefeller, the, most, the richest man, I think, back then on the planet and three-term governor of New York, George Romney, Mitt Romney's dad, George Wallace, who made Donald Trump's campaign style look like panty waste. Uh, you, had, you had all of these 
major political figures who had been on the scene for 20 or more years all colliding in one race. And so for a kid who was interested in, in government and history, I mean, that was it was the Super Bowl of politics and nothing's topped it. Uh, in my lifetime. So it was hard not to get drawn into uh, all of the excitement. It, right in the middle of it, Martin Luther King was assassinated. Eight weeks later, Robert Kennedy was assassinated. The Vietnam War was raging. Riots were in the streets. I mean, 1968 was a cataclysmic year. And uh, it cemented my interest uh, in so many different ways. And then it actually cemented your interest so much that it's one of the reasons you uh, you got kicked out of high school, correct? Well, that and, uh, you know, smoking pot with my buddies and, uh, you know, hot wiring cars and things, things like that. Uh, but I, I was expelled from high school. I, I can't even I, I don't even get to say. Remember, I told you there are always levels. Uh, if you're a dropout, it's one thing. If you're expelled, that's that's a lower you know standard. It's you know, it's not the dropout can look at me and say, well, at least I wasn't expelled. Uh, <laughs> Well, you got that too, right? Because you, you got expelled from high school, but then you you removed yourself from the continuation school, right? I did. Uh, they sent me to a continuation school in, I don't know if, if anybody down here is familiar with Northern California, but I think it was in uh, North Richmond. And it was just in a, in a, just a horrific neighborhood. I lasted, I think I didn't, I think I made it less than two weeks. Uh, I got my life threatened there every day. I got jumped by six guys. Uh, walking into school one day. And when I left, I just walked away. Nobody ever came looking for me. They just, yeah. as far as I know, uh, they're still putting me down as present for homeroom so they could collect <laughs> money. I mean, <laughs> my first day at the continuation school, one of the administrators sat me down and he said, look, homeroom's at whatever, 845. It's 15 minutes. You be at homeroom. I don't care if you show up for the rest of your classes, but you be in homeroom every day at or you're going to deal with me. And I said, well, how come you don't care if I go to history or English, but you want me in homeroom? That's where the, they take role. That's where the money comes from. And if you cost me money, you're going to deal with me after homeroom, do what you want. So like I said, they may still be marking me down for homeroom up there. <laughs> well, I, I think it's interesting because at this point in your life, you, your goal and correct me if I'm wrong, but you you want to be in politics. Oh, at this point yes, absolutely. I, it went from the time I was in fifth grade, my goal was to be a congressman. I wanted I I saw the I saw the nexus very early as a kid. And uh, the nexus was people in politics are able to do good things for poor people like we were. Uh, I lived uh, for a long time with my great aunt who uh, lived on, I think it was one hundred and three or five dollar a month Social Security check. And I would watch her every month just try to set aside 50 cents or a dollar for me to go buy campaign buttons for my collection and uh the uh, i think that i i think that big influence for me was hubert humphrey because and nobody remembers hubert humphrey anymore but when i was a kid he was one of the dominant figures in american political life uh he had 100 percent name recognition everybody knew hubert humphrey and they loved him or they hated him but here was a guy that grew up during the, he was a, a young man during the depression. He was, he worked at a Walgreens as a pharmacist, but he, he was very patriotic, loved his country, became a college professor, ran for mayor because the city of uh, Minneapolis at the time was very corrupt. And so he wanted to clean it up. He got, a, I think he lost the first time, then he got elected, 
went on to the United States Senate and in 20, no, almost 30 years in Washington, uh, everything from Medicare to uh, Social Security protection to the nuclear test ban treaty. Uh, they were Hubert, uh, Social Security, they, they were Hubert Humphrey's fingerprints were on everything. 1964 Civil Rights Act. Hubert Humphrey was the guy that moved that thing through. And so as a kid, I was very interested in him. I read articles about him. He was running for president. And I saw, you know, all these guys in politics, all these presidents that I was reading about, they didn't, they weren't all Kennedys and Roosevelt's. I mean, some, I, I said in the book, one future president uh, was a debtor. One was an indentured servant. One was a hangman. Uh, but I, I kept trying to figure out how did this massively crazy, diverse group of men, you know, from dirt farms and log cabins, how did they all end up in the White House? And the, the nexus was they got involved in politics. They got involved in the operations of government. And once I drew the, once I connected those dots, that's what I wanted to do. I thought getting into government is where you can affect people's lives and it doesn't matter what your background is. Mm -hmm. That's what interested me. You didn't have to be a rich kid. You didn't have to be, you know, uh, born with a silver spoon in your mouth. You just had to get active and interested and work hard. And then uh, the opportunity uh, to hopefully do good things, whether it's on the local or the state or even the national level, it's there. And if you just convince enough people of the righteousness of what you believe in, you know, they elect you and then uh, you're off to the races. Well, at this point in your life, though, you, you've, you're, I don't want to say you're rock bottom, but you're, you know, you're reassessing your political career because you've been kicked out of high school. You're, you know, what do you yeah, do? That's, that's a bit problematic, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, it's one of the problems. One of the, one of the, it, it sounds so, it sounds so silly, but there was never anybody there when I was a teenager to tell me you have to go to high school and you have to get the very best grades you can get because the better your grades, the better opportunity you have to go on to college. And then when you get to college, you have to work really hard if you want to be a lawyer, which I did, because that makes a difference on if you, if you can get into a law school and if you can get into a law school there, I didn't know any lawyers. There was nobody there to tell me. In fact, I think I, I don't remember, I don't even remember now because the book came out almost 20 years ago if it ended up on the cutting room floor. But, uh, you know, I just had this I, I knew I was a smart kid. I was I, I read incessantly. I was a very, very avid reader and I was book smart. And uh, I just I guess I just figured, you know, at some point and when I'm done goofing around and having fun with my buddies and hanging out with my buddies and getting in trouble and chasing girls and, you know, getting loaded. Uh, I just show up at some college and take the intelligence test and, you know, and, you know, in you go. And uh, when the dean of the high school called me in and said, congratulations, uh, you just joined the 20 club. And I said, what's the 20 club? He said, well, this is the 20th time you've been suspended. And that's when we expel you. You're out. Uh, that was that was soul rattling because I saw everything that I'd wanted to do, everything that was of interest. It just all crashed down in that one moment. And I so begged, how'd you get through that? I begged and I pleaded, come on, give me one chance. I mean, I'll turn around. He's like, yeah, no, sorry. Chances are over. Out you go. And, uh, just tossed me out the door and said, uh, you know, go to the continuation school. As I said, that lasted two weeks and, uh, 
So now I, I just saw everything that I had hoped to accomplish in life, everything that I had, that I looked forward to, you know, one day having a shot at doing just, it just, it was just gone. So and was, what do you do? T- tell us, what do you do to get it back on track? H- how did you push through that and, and get to the next stage, which is you, I know you got to Berkeley. So tell us between getting kicked out uh, of high school to getting to Berkeley, like how did you get through that? I'm just so blessed because so many people that I grew up with, most of the kids I grew up with, they either, they either ended up strung out on drugs, dead in jail, in prison. There really were not very many, you know, happy endings. Most of the kids ended up just with how you would expect kids uh, growing up in a neighborhood like that. If you, if, if, when I lived in an apartment with a single mom on welfare and food stamps, my mother was a convicted felon in and out of jail. Uh, guess what? That apartment was filled with single moms uh, on welfare and food stamps and with criminal records uh, and kids running wild. And so, you know, this, that's everybody, you know, they, they kind of congregate in the same places because that's what they can afford. And so um, I had because I had a passion for. For what I wanted to do. And I think this is where my grandfather's greatest influence came in. And it would be years after he died. He was somebody who just told me, never give up. You just, you know, fight for what you believe in, fight for what you want. Uh, He was not a quitter. And I just kept thinking to myself, how would he handle this? And so instead of feeling sorry for myself or, you know, getting, becoming an alcoholic or starting to do drugs, I just sat down and I tried to take a logical assessment of the situation. I'm out of school. But there are a lot of people who have been out of school who get back into school. What do I need to do? I need to get back in school. I can't get back into school where I was, but what I can do is get a job, try to save some money, and then maybe start going to night classes. And so that's what I did. Uh, I started going to high school. I I was working 10, 12 hours a day at all kinds of low-end, some of them just really demeaning, awful jobs. Uh, And then I'd go pack up and go to night school for three or four hours. Uh, but I, I did that for about a year or so. And by now I was probably 17 or whatever. Uh, and I remember I went in and I talked to the counselor at the night school and I said, you know, if I keep this up, when, you know, when can I get my high school diploma? And she started, you know, running the figure. And she said, well, uh, you can probably get that in about two and a half, three years at this rate. And I'm thinking, well, you know, I'm 17 and a half and they're just opening this community college down the street from me. And back then I found out under California law, then I don't know if it's true now. If you did not have a high school diploma, you could not enroll in a community college until you were 18 years old. And the reason was they didn't want kids prematurely dropping out of high school, you know, passing go and, and, you know, rather, you know, passing the boardwalk and going straight to go. Uh, So they wanted you had to be 18. And this community college opened up on my 18th birthday. And so I spent my 18th birthday filling out the forms. And uh, I still worked. I worked. I've been working basically since I was 10 years old when I was getting paid under the table at King Norman's Kingdom of Toys in Westlake, uh, not Westlake, Southern California, the Westlake area of Daly City, San Francisco. Um, So I still worked, but I started going to community college and uh, I took it seriously because I knew I had to. And then from there, I was able to transfer to Berkeley and then go to UCLA. Yeah, you know. I wanted to talk to you about UCLA law school, I should say. Right. And you, you mentioned, uh, Hubert Humphrey and 
I want you to talk to me about other mentors because he's you struck a relationship up with him and, and you guys read letters to each other. Who are the mentors that helped you through this process? Um, you know, eventually getting to to the United States Congress. Well, you know, when I got to community college, there were professors, there were teachers, there were professors that uh, inspired me, but they inspired me because they interested me because they were uh, very effective at what they taught and they were teaching what fascinated me. Mm -hmm. uh, interestingly, I, I, I told this once to the, I, I spoke to the community college association and about a thousand community college kids. And I told them my community college degree means more to me than my degree from Berkeley. Uh, my undergraduate degree from Berkeley. And the reason it means more to me is because when I was going to community college, I sat in a classroom with 20 or so students. Every professor knew my name. I knew their name. I could sit down and have office hours with them to my heart's content. I could pick their brains. I could ask questions. And when I was at Cal, uh, I'd walk into a uh, you know lecture hall with two or 300 of my closest friends. Uh, the professor would walk out to uh, lecture to, you know, 400 people. And if I had any questions or if I wanted office hours, I met with the teacher's assistant. I didn't meet with the professor. You met with some grad student. And so it was it was far more it, it was far more intense for me. And maybe I was also it, it was at a time in my life when I was just ready to absorb information and absorb what I needed. Uh, but I found my time at uh, at the community college uh, far more helpful than my time at Berkeley. Berkeley, by the time, you know, at Berkeley, I was just there to, you know, get good grades so I could get into law school and move on. Right. And, and you get there, you get to law school, you end up almost getting kicked out of law school also because, because you're working too hard outside of law school, essentially, but you make it, um, you're on law review and you get that big firm job that so many people want. I have to back you up if you'll allow me take over. Absolutely. I'm going to hijack your podcast just for a second. So, yeah. Uh, there was, uh, at the end of the first semester of law school, I'm working 45, 50 hours uh, in Hollywood at two bars. I'm working at Filthy McNasty's and uh, I'm working at the Palomino Club. And then I was also doing side jobs at these other bars. And so I would get up in the morning at uh, 530 and I didn't have on-campus housing. I had to live out in Reseda. So I'd get up at 530, fight traffic for an hour trying to get to Westwood. I didn't even have a parking space. So I had to get take a parking ticket every day. Uh, I'd go to class. My first class was at eight. I think my last one got out around three or four in the afternoon. Then I would commute from Westwood all the way back to Reseda, which is west out in the valley, change clothes, commute east in the valley to North Hollywood uh, to go bartend until 2.30 or so in the morning. And then I'd go have dinner. And by the time I got home, it was 4 a.m. And I had to start this cycle again two hours later and go to UCLA Law School, which is a full-time law school filled with rich kids. Uh, or on, you know, scholarships who had nothing better to do than, you know, live in the dorm and study. So at the, the end of my first semester, I get called into the dean's office. Dean Slaughter calls me into his office and he sits down and he looks at me and uh, he said, uh, so uh, did you see your grades? And I said, well, yeah, you know. Uh, and he said, uh, you know, Jim, shook his head. He's a great big guy, big, big guy and a tall guy. And he's looking at me, leaned in and he said, you know, Jim, <clears throat> law school is not for everybody. And there's no shame that you can't cut it here. But, you know, truthfully, when we let you in uh, the beginning of the semester, you know, for every guy we let in, we had whatever it was, 200, 300, you know, and you're taking up space here. And he slid across the table to me some paperwork 
and a pen and just you just sign your name on this you know we'll put you out of it was like you know just we're going to euthanize you just sign your name to this and uh, it, and that was probably for a moment the lowest moment of my life because now everything that i had worked for was just crash and burn but my despair really i remember i remember it like it was yesterday my despair lasted uh, maybe two or three seconds and then i started getting angry and i was angry because he just never asked oh i asked him so you know what what when am i at what point am i kicked out of law school and he said to me when your grade point average reaches 65 and i said well what's mine he said 65.7 <laughs> and i started getting I, I really i got angry because he didn't he just looked at this and just assumed this guy's a goofy can't cut it without ever asking, is there a problem? Is there a problem? I mean, is there, you know, is there some reason why you're not, you know? And so that's when I asked him, I said, at what point am I academically disqualified? He said, when your GPA is 65, I said, what's mine? He said, 65.7. And I pushed the papers back. And I said, then there's a 0.7 differential between you and I ever having to talk again. Uh, and it was, you know, it was kind of an intense moment. So well, can I can I stop you right there though? Because I, yeah, I got to finish it for you. Okay. So, what was the name of my dean? Dean Fred Slaughter. Thirty-five or so years later, guess who I was the mentor judge for at the Fullerton Courthouse when Governor Brown appointed a new judge, Fred Slaughter Jr. My no. first words were, "Fred, don't tell your old man." <laughs> Who is mentoring <laughs> you? He's going to tell you to get another job. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I hope that was worth hijacking your podcast for a few minutes because that I, I had to tell you that story. A hundred percent. A hundred. Well, did did the younger slaughter tell the older slaughter? You know, you know? to the elder slaughter. Well, oh, I'm sure he did because he was still alive. I mean, he, he, it's kind of hard to keep that secret. <laughs> but uh, to Dean Slaughter's credit, after I pushed the papers back and I had a few choice words, uh, I, I think I even told him, I think I said to him, you know, you haven't even asked me what's the problem. Yeah. And I remember we had, so what's the problem? And when I explained it to him, he shook his head and he said, look, here's what we can do. Uh, you made it through your first semester. Uh, and so you can take a leave of absence. If you took a leave of absence before your grades came in, uh, I'd have to I'd have to drop you from school. So why don't you take a leave of absence? You can take a year uh, and, uh, you know, regroup, save some money. And he gave me scholarship, you know, or he sent me down to the office to apply for, you know, I didn't even know. I didn't even know about guaranteed student loans. I mean, that's I told you I didn't know anybody who'd gone to yeah. college. I didn't know anybody who went to law school. I didn't know you could take out loans. I thought you had to go work for three bucks an hour and, you know, uh, try to pay for the whole thing. Yeah. So. He sent me, you know, he told me to take a leave of absence. He sent me to pick up the applications. And so that's exactly what I did. I took a leave of absence for about a year, a little more than a year, came back, uh, lived on campus, took out as many loans as I could, uh, finished law school. And when I was a member of the United States House of Representatives, now it's like 25, 30 years later, 
every year, Roll Call Magazine would put out a list of the richest con the 10 richest congressmen and the 10 poorest congressmen. And they always made a point to put me not only on the bottom of the 10 of the poorest, but to mention he is the only member of Congress still paying off student loans. Uh, <laughs> so I tell my law students who worry, you know, I owe so much money and I tell them, take out whatever you need. You know, it's everything I've done in life is because I took out student loans that I never thought I'd be able to pay off. I finally paid them off, I think, during my second term in Congress. That's amazing. That's, I mean, that's incredible. But I, I, what I think is fascinating is that, I mean, a lot of it, but in that moment where Dean Slaughter calls you in there and has this conversation with you, you said that was, that was bottom for you, right? I think I had, I think I saw his face telling me law school wasn't for everybody. Even when I was a civil litigator, you know, I have these <laughs> nightmares. Uh, I finally, you know, at, by the time I made it to the DA's office, it started fading, but uh, that was, a, it was a, uh, yeah, it was a very uh, jarring moment in my life. Well, it sounds like that moment, but you've had, it feels like you've had a lot where. Yeah. At some point I got used to jarring moments. Uh, right. I mean, that, that, that's a, what I just want to ask you about is it feels like you have a lot of these jarring moments, these moments where you could have taken one or two paths, yeah. right? You You could have rolled over. And, and gone the route that it, a lot of the, the guys you grew up with went, you know, even in that moment, right? I mean, you, you could have waved the white flag and packed it in and headed home, but you didn't. And so what sort of, is there an empowering belief? Is there something that your grandfather taught you or something that you picked up along the way well, that I, helped you, know, you in those moments? Your, you know, all of your heathen listeners aren't going to like this, but, uh, you know, as I've grown older and as I've reflected upon my life, uh, I am a man of faith, and I do believe uh, that God reigns in the affairs of men, and he wants a relationship with us. And I, th I believe that uh, God has protected me. He's, he's protected me from myself, because if I were just left to my own devices, I'd probably still be bartending and, uh, you know, asking uh, mud wrestlers for their phone number. Uh, you know, kind of a pathetic sight at 63. Uh but no, I'm I'm a great believer that uh, you know that 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 the Lord is there for us, and uh, as a Christian, uh, I take that very seriously. And as I look back on my life, I can just I, I I can just see all the times that God protected me from myself, uh, and uh, unfortunately, He also gives us free will, and uh, maybe there was an ingrained uh, spirit of uh, wanting to do the right thing thanks to my grandfather and you know people along the way and having this passion as a kid but so many of the guys i grew up with as i said i mean there were just no there were very very few happy endings among my closest friends and it's uh, it's a tragedy that uh, will haunt me until uh, they lay me away and i go to glory yeah well i i think the other thing that i i saw in your story a bunch was this idea of making it you know, that, um, you know, being in big law, whether that was making it, um, even when you're having success in the success in the DA's office, uh, you talk about something was missing. Um, so can you, can you talk to me about what, if you figured out eventually what was missing with each of those successes? Cause you also talked about how, um, the successes would, they felt they, the anticipated graphic gratification never came or passed right. quickly with right. each of these successes you had. So um, like what, what kept you going through all that? And, and what did you determine for yourself was making it? 
So, as I said, I'm the oldest of four children. My mom had four kids, actually five. One died when she was a baby. Uh, all four of us never finished high school. Not surprising since there was really no adult supervision in the house. Um, and so during those very lean and uh, discouraging years when I was a kid expelled from high school, I, I, I can remember thinking, you know, if I could just get back in school, everything will be okay. And then I did get back in school and I realized, but this isn't enough. I mean, I've got, if I can get into this community college and actually start college, that'll make up for my high school uh, diploma deficiency. And I got into community college. And as soon as I got there, there was always the next hurdle. Well, it's fine to get an AA, but it's really not going to do me any good if I can't get that bachelor's degree at a university. I've got to get into a university. If I, if I could get into a university, Nobody in my family's ever done that. You know, that'll be when I know that, you know, everything will be okay. And then when I got there, it suddenly wasn't. Well, I have to be able to graduate for it to count. And then when I graduated, I have to get into a law school. And then I got into a law school and then I had to pass the bar. And even when I passed the bar, if I could just get one of these big firm jobs that everybody at UCLA is, you know, grasping and groping for, then I'm going to know I've made it. And I got to the big firm and, uh, I, I, th I told the story in the book, one of my very first cases, it was a big firm, had been around for 100 years. It's still a big firm, only it's merged. Uh, they sent me down to do, and you're a civil guy, you know, summary judgments. You're not, judges aren't supposed to grant summary judgment. They gave me a summary judgment motion. My client was his major ship owner, ship liner, we had represented the entire shipping line. Uh, it was this old longshoreman that got brutally and uh, seriously injured because of my client's uh, liability. My client was responsible. And I'm some first year associate and I'm buried in the books for the weekend. And I found some hook that uh, nobody else had found. And I and all these partners came down and watched me argue this summary judgment. And I won. And here's this. I, I've got all these guys. Pay, it, was, it was almost like in a movie. You know, I've got all these senior partners patting me on the back and shaking my hand, telling me what a great job I did. But I'm looking across counsel table at the plaintiff's lawyer trying to explain to this old crippled man and his elderly wife why, even though, you know, my client did this to them, they don't collect anything. And I just and he was a longshoreman. This could have been my grandfather and my grandmother. You know, it was it probably was somebody's grandfather and grandmother. And I just felt this overwhelming need to walk up to this old man when everybody was done and tell him, you know, something like, gee, I'm really sorry, nothing personal, I was just doing much. I couldn't look him in the eye. I was looking at my shoes. Yeah, sorry, you know, I just, I really feel bad for you, you know, I'm just, and when I did look up, he just looked at me and his wife took his hand and said, come on, honey, let's, let's go home. And I watched this old couple walking down the hallway at the courthouse, hand in hand. And I went back to my office, closed my door and stared out the window at number one Wilshire, which was down below my office window on, uh, I think we're on Figaro or something. And I, my, it felt like three hours. I don't know how long I stared out the window. And I just thought to myself, is this all these, all these mountains, all these hurdles, everything I've gone through to get to the, I passed the bar the first time I'm at this major firm. I'm working for major clients. I'm making more money than anybody in my family has ever seen. I've got this wood paneled office. I've got people to do my banking and pick up my lunch for me. 
is this what I did it all for? So I could stare out a window and feel miserable about winning. And that's when I knew that, you know, this wasn't going to do it for me. I had to find something that was professionally fulfilling. And uh, I found that in the DA's office. And it wasn't just because as a DA, I hope DAs are taught the way I was taught. I mean, my bosses were old school and we were taught you never proceed on a case unless you believe two things. Number one, the defendant did it. Number two, irrespective of number one, you have enough admissible evidence to convince 12 jurors beyond a reasonable doubt after you contemplate what is the likely defense. Back then, we didn't have reciprocal discovery. And if the answer to both those questions was not yes, you are morally obliged to dismiss the case because the charging decision of a prosecutor can upend people's lives in tremendous ways that can never be repaired. You never charge somebody with a crime unless you can prove it and you know the guy's good for it. And I loved going to work every day because I never had to walk into court unless I believed in the righteousness of my cause. And I loved working with the defense bar. I loved working with the public defenders. Uh, I was there to try to do the right thing. They were there to help teach me from their perspective what was the right thing. And uh, uh, and there was a lot for me to learn from them. And, if, and I found going into that job with a learning spirit uh, was really the best way to approach it. Because you know from your time in criminal law, there, 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 it, it, there, it's not as it seems to people who aren't part of what my old boss, Walt Lewis, used to call the club. Uh, it's not guilty, not guilty. Uh, I, I would bet without knowing all of your clients, most of them uh, would have told you, A, you know, yeah, I did something. I just didn't do what the DA charged or B, well, okay, I did it, but the DA wants time that's not or wants punishment that's not commensurate with it. I mean, the percentage of defense attorneys who've told me that they have their clients were factually not guilty is, you know, what would you say case five, 10% maybe, you know, that right. you believe that they weren't, they, they didn't come within that umbrella. And so then it was really just a question of trying to work out with the defense attorney. What's a just result that takes care of the state's uh, needs and the victim's needs, but is also commensurate with the defendant's actions and background and, and any mitigating circumstances involved. And, and so it really was, it was, it was a job that I just loved. I loved being in the courtroom and having that responsibility and being able to work with so many fine attorneys on the other side. I was just, uh, once again, I was blessed and uh, I had found my, I had found my niche. And I, you, in your book, you quote Horace Mann and, and the quote is, be ashamed to die until you have won some victory for humanity. I have to confess. I hope he said that. I didn't look that up in Bartlett's quotation. I remember that from a Twilight Zone episode when I was about 12. <laughs> That's why I got it from. And I, you know, I never bothered to fact check it. I figured, hey, it's on the Twilight Zone. It must be true. <laughs> That's, that, that is amazing. That, that's amazing. But that's my confession. You've got it in the book. And and just to end up, you, you cite that your work in the DA's office um, was – the work that you've done for humanity, but, but since then you've done so much, you've accomplished so much. Um, what, as you see it here right now, what do you think the biggest victory you have won for humanity is? Boy, I told you not, don't send me your questions in advance, but now I wish you had, 
Uh, I think of everything I've ever done in my life, and I've done a lot. I've had virtually every job on the planet from the lowest to among the highest. Uh, I would say that it was in raising two little girls, because when all is said and done, nobody cares about your resume. Nobody cares about uh, all of the victories that you count for yourself. When, you know, when your time is over, all that really is left of you uh, are the people that you've influenced and that uh, you've helped to raise and you've helped to uh, educate who are then going to go on and carry on. Uh, and hopefully that that's where your legacy will be. Um, I don't view it in any elections I've won. I don't view it in any books I've written. Uh, I certainly don't view it in any court victories I had as a lawyer. Uh, I think my greatest victory for humanity was in raising twin daughters. And I think my grandfather's greatest victory for humanity was in raising two grandchildren because they went on to do better than he was able to do. I, that, and that's what you want for your for your two kids. Uh, and uh, if 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 you accomplish that uh, case, then everything else uh, you've done is OK. But that's your greatest victory for humanity. Now that's that we've nice. had this discussion, I'm going to have to fact check Rod Serling because uh, <laughs> listen, if Horace Mann didn't say it, he should have. And uh, <laughs> Well, I, I loved it. I, I loved your book. Um, I love the time I got to spend in your courtroom. And thank you very much for sharing your story with us today. And hopefully yeah, we can do you. it again soon because I love it. And I, I have a lot more, a lot more I want to talk to you about, dive in with you. And so some other time I'm going to make you come back with me. All right, Your Honor. That'll be a pleasure case. Uh, now, who do I talk to about getting my residuals from your podcast? Uh, is that, uh, do I talk to your uh, administrative assistant or? Uh... Why, don't you, why don't you ask my dad? Okay. Oh yeah. Fat <laughs> 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 thank you case hey thanks a lot you're on have a great day okay you too